Welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Robles. And today, will we see any more Mac releases for the rest of this year? Apple TV 4K reviews are out. Let's talk more about the iPhone 14 Pro camera and some stage manager thoughts. And joining me is my fellow uh, big iPad user, my friend Wes Hilliard. How's it going, Wes? Okay, Stephen, except for our setup being on fire for the first five minutes here, but I think <laughs> I think we're good to go now. I was almost going to suggest uh, with all the cable issues, maybe just use the iPad to do it because you could plug your USB microphone directly into the iPad and use the you know, the Riverside app to record. But No, I think uh, I'll just go full annoying person in public and just do the uh, microphone linking through Ventura from my iPhone and oh, hold it up right. to my mouth on speakerphone and talk to you that way for the podcast. I see so many people on TikTok when they're doing like on the street interviews. Now they will just hold their iPhone upside down because the microphone is usually in that bottom part. If they're doing like a voice memo or something, they'll cup their hands over the bottom of their iPhone and then use the bottom as as the mic. You know, they'll hold it up to their mouth. They'll say something, ask the question then hold it to the interviewee and it will just be the bottom of the iPhone. And I mean, honestly, it's surprising how good it can sound, especially outdoors with noise and people. But, you know, get a, get a lapel. I mean, if you're going to be doing content creation, you know, get a lapel mic. That's all. Yeah. But if you do want to record a really good quality voice memo, do cup your hand and talk into the bottom of your iPhone. Not super close because then it'll get a little muffled. But if you're talking to the bottom of your iPhone... You can get pretty good sound. I mean, it can, it does a good job picking your voice up. So, Also, just a side note, this is just the voice memo tip here at the top of the show. You know, a lot of times we think of taking pictures and videos, especially if you have kids or family and all that kind of stuff. I would recommend trying when you're at a gathering of some sort to just turn on your voice memo recorder, flip your iPhone over and just let it run for like 30 to 40 minutes. Because sometimes you get to record some nice uh, conversation and sometimes listening to a memory is a cool experience as opposed to having to to watch it or see a picture. So just a little tip there. You ever do that? You ever do like a, a sneaky voice memo to capture a memory? Every now and then, yeah. Try and get my parents on one of their tangents talking about something they did when they were younger and <laughs> yes. start a recording. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's a fun thing. So anyway, all right, we got a lot to talk about. Not actually a ton of news this week, but Apple TV 4K is out. The initial reviews were out and then the product actually drops Friday, as you listen to this, November 4th, I got one of them coming. And also, there was a big review from the Halide team. Sebastian DeWitt did his iPhone 14 Pro camera review. I want to talk about that as well. Real quick, some five-star review shout-outs. Guthrie from Thailand, international listener. Thank you for that five-star reviews. He suggested for the iPad Pro camera to put it on the landscape long side of iPad Pro to put it under the display. And I don't think that tech is there just yet, but maybe one day... Apple would do an under display camera so this way it can move to the middle. Although, you know, if there's charging mechanisms there for the Apple Pencil, that's why the camera wasn't there. It might still be an issue, even if the camera's under the display. But yeah, put the camera directly in the center of the display. <laughs> well, a little high. A little, you got to put it up a little higher. You know, you don't, you don't <laughs> want that up, that up look. But a Game Man 114 from the USA, Tech Flight Gaming Awesome from North Virginia. Quite, that is a pretty cool name. He was asked a question. Uh, why should someone get a huge iPad Pro with keyboard instead of just buying a MacBook? I'm trying to cause a fight here. And, MacBooks uh, suck. No. Um, <laughs> uh, we, like, we like iPads around here. Get used to it. No, there's there's definitely different use cases. Uh, I mean, I own both a MacBook and an iPad, so I'm definitely one of those weirdos who have more money than sense. For, for a lot of people, I think you could get away with just an iPad. Someone tweeted this question a couple weeks ago, and with all the flurry of news, never got to it. But someone asked... Why would someone get an M1 Max 
Mac Studio, the desktop, <coughs> over an M1 Max MacBook Pro. Because you can get a MacBook Pro now, you get an incredible XDR display with ProMotion, and it's in a laptop, so you can be portable. And that is, I actually made the choice to go with an M1 Max Mac Studio over MacBook Pro, because that's what I use. My Mac Studio is my main machine, but I got an M1 Max. And like this question, why iPad Pro with keyboard instead of just buying a MacBook, I think it just depends on the kind of work you do and the small caveats that come with it. I really, really love having a desktop computer because I never have to think about battery. If there's ever a utility that I would like running at all times, something like Transloader, which is an amazing like video downloader for different links. I have that running on a Mac and I can explain that in a future episode if you're interested, but Transloader is great. But just having a desktop that's always on, always there, tap the space bar on my Magic Keyboard and it's awake and it's ready to go. All my peripherals are always connected, my audio interfaces and video switchers. So sometimes you just want a desktop, even if you can get the same power in a laptop. You also get some more ports. But. I, I think the ideal setup is a Mac Studio and an iPad. I would have that setup if I'd known the Mac Studio was coming. Uh, I bought the MacBook Pro around release time, and a few months later, the Mac Studio arrives, and I'm like, man, that would have been perfect for my needs. But I really like the uh, MacBook Pro because I guess it's the best of both worlds. For me, I do travel sometimes, and I, I do want to work when I'm traveling. I'm not going to lug a Mac Studio with me, and the Systems I use on iBook aren't 100% portable to iPad Pro, like, uh, you know, clipboard management and all of that. So while I could, I can work from iPad Pro, I did for a few years at Apple Insider, it's less ideal. So having a MacBook Pro portable, but acting as my desktop at home 99% of the time, I think is still, it's a good compromise, but uh, yeah. Ideally, though, I think it would be a desktop computer. And maybe Apple can fix Stage Manager and make the iPad Pro more useful. But there you go. We're going to talk about Stage Manager in a little bit because I gave it an old college go, as you'll say. Final five-star review, Aztec1967. Thank you for that. He says he loves William because he's an ex-Brit now living in British Columbia, Canada. Thank you all for those five-star reviews. And one other follow-up in relation to iPad and cellular plans, cellular connectivity, at least here in the United States. Dave Gingrich sent me a message, said, when you're looking for at those cellular plans on iPad, that there is a T-Mobile prepaid plan. You do kind of have to go through some finicky menus to find it. But T-Mobile offers a $10 for five gigabytes plan. It's prepaid, so it's not just constantly recurring. And you can use those five gigabytes for as long as you need or until you use up the five gigabytes. And then you can just buy another $10, five gigabytes for that. So yeah, that is really nice if you want a prepaid plan. Do you have a cellular iPad? I forget. I do. You do. Do you use the cellular, you find? Like I said, I, and whenever I'm traveling, that's my go-to. I tend to uh, yeah. use my iPad Pro untethered from my phone. It's more reliable to have a dedicated cellular connection. Like, do you pair that with your phone cellular plan, or did you go with a different carrier? So right now, I'm kind of transitioning. Oh. For the last few years, if you ask me that, I would say yes. I uh, just pay for the $10 a month Verizon add-on uh, for a tablet plan. It's just unlimited, included with my cell phone plan. But I think we're looking into getting out from under Verizon because I'm trying to trying to get out from under every contract imaginable. I don't want to be long to anybody anymore. So like cable companies or like uh, home internet specifically, not cable because you can get those like sling packages and stuff. Uh, but home internet and cellular are the two remaining things, I, I believe, that are contract only type dedications uh, that you're basically locked into 
contract style things and there's just a lot of overhead a lot of fees and it's terrible uh, while home internet may never improve uh at the very least i can get out from under verizon and i'm going to go with um guess what verizon uh, it's a what? company <laughs> there's <laughs> i discovered through uh, an email advertisement probably the first one ever to make me think of something that i wanted to do <laughs> this thing called visible oh. i don't know if anyone's ever heard of this but it's uh brought to you by verizon hmm. it's a different company but it's using the verizon service and it's 30 dollars per month full unlimited Ooh. or 45 dollars per month if you want mm wave 5g and tablet plan add-ons i think are five or ten dollars but anyway like it's just much more affordable it's month to month no contract and i think we're going to shift over to that without losing too much coverage in the uh, meantime whoa i'm putting a link to that in the show notes i was familiar with past sponsor like a year ago mint mobile who Ryan Reynolds is like co-owner, but Mint Mobile is kind of one of these, you can pay for a year or pay for the month, but you just pay for the data you use. Of course, they do have unlimited data plans as well. So I had considered those. I'm curious, oh, you can add a smartwatch for just $5 a month too. So you can bring your app. And, and what's really cool is Visible, just like uh, T-Mobile, a few of these guys, a lot of these guys are, are going towards my kind of audience of cord cutting curious, wanting to find other ways to save money. And uh, Visible's in that same spectrum, I think. And yeah. another thing that's cool about them, eSIMs, if you have an eSIM device, you can do like a two-week free trial on their service. Oh. Yeah. So you can just say, how does this compare to my T-Mobile or Verizon or whatever? Go ahead, download the app, create an account, don't pay anything, and try out their service for two weeks and see if how it compares, how it's useful. Yeah. Really cool. They look, It looks very cool. I'm curious what the premium network experience, so 50 gigabytes of premium data on 5G. I'm curious how that compares or what that means. Oh, so so like any anyone else, uh, unlimited is a lie. Sure. You're not actually ever getting unlimited. Don't don't believe them. Uh, you're going to be throttled after you use so much, and I believe that's what that means. You get 50 gigs of the unthrottled internet, and if you pay the $45 per month one, you will get throttled less often in high traffic areas. Like you're basically yeah. getting you're a premier customer getting more preference or whatever for networking. But if you go over that 50 gigs, that's when it drops down. But um, 50 gigs is a lot of data on cellular. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about gaming, uh, like Genshin Impact uh, on your phone data plan or something right. for hours at a time. It's it's hard to achieve that. This this is amazing. They, they're not a sponsor. They should sponsor this show. No, no, no. Yeah, too. like I, this is completely... That's a good Yeah, deal. like just out of nowhere, I just discovered this and I thought I'd let like, you guys know. It's pretty cool. That's amazing. Yeah, link is in the show notes. That's really cool. All right, so news or non-news, but it looks like we are done uh, for Apple releases for the rest of 2022. Two points of information. Number one, Tim Cook on the earnings call last week said, quote, as we approach the holiday season with our product lineup set, I'd like to share my gratitude to our retail, Apple Care, and channel teams for the work. And so it seems like Tim Cook implied the product lineup is set, and that means those rumored Macs like a M2 Pro, M2 Max, MacBook Pro, or M2 Mac Mini, M2 iMac, and notably the Apple Silicon Mac Pro might not be coming by this year. We'd have to wait till 2023, which was also corroborated by Mark Gurman, who has been pretty accurate in the last couple years. He says Apple is also done releasing new products. So it seems like no more Apple events, no more press releases or other products to be released for the rest of this year. We're kind of done. And I think that's notable because this does mark the two-year transition time from Apple Silicon. The first M1, MacBook Pro, Mac Mini, and what was the other one? There were three. iMac. Oh, Mac. 
No, MacBook Pro, MacBook Air, and Mac Mini. Sorry, uh, those are the three M1 MacBooks. Oh, we're talking about the original M1 ago. release. Yes, Right. That was two years ago this month, November. And the original claim that Tim Cook made at WWDC earlier that year was two years for the transition of the Mac lineup to Apple Silicon. And everything has been, quote unquote, transition. There's still an Intel Mac Mini you can buy. But the Mac Pro... We have not seen an Apple Silicon version of the Mac Pro yet, and it would have been this month or at least the end of this year that we see it. Now, Johnny Saruji lied to us. <laughs> well, well, Tim Cook, I mean, he was the one that said it, I think, you know, two, or was it Johnny Saruji? Well, okay, so it. Tim Cook said the two-year plan, but Johnny Saruji earlier this year said that the Mac Pro is still to come. Now, he didn't give us a specific timeline, right. but we put two and two together. Combining Tim Cook's little thing and Johnny Saruji's thing, we were like, oh, it's coming in the fall for sure, but not happening. Now, there there could be, I don't know if this would warrant a whole event. I mean, they could announce the Mac Pro and not go for sale until 2023, but that does not feel like they would do that. The lineup is set, Stephen. The lineup is set. I, I do want to, I just want to say, roll out the red carpets, bust open the confetti cannons and just let tell me that I was right this whole time and saying that there was no way... <laughs> that the M2 Pro, M2 Max, anything was coming out this year because it didn't make any sense. Yeah, you, you got that right. Although the M2 iPad Pro did come out. I feel like you were naysaying that early on too. I was naysaying that if only because uh -huh. of what happened. And I, I don't remember what we talked about last episode. I have podcast amnesia. Right, but right. Um, if, if this is reiteration, sorry guys, but more or less my thoughts on the M2 iPad Pro before we move on. It could have waited later and had more going on with it like that uh mini led display and stuff like that but instead we got this kind of odd mid-cycle bump it's basically a processor bump with a, a couple of little tricks thrown in with the apple pencil and it's indicative of different thing happening which i think is more hardware coming later a bigger ipad sometime next year whatever but uh, the iPads coming this soon. I, I was kind of hoping they wouldn't come this soon because I wanted more changes right. and knowing them coming out now basically would mean it's just a processor bump. And that's exactly what we got. And I, I was naysaying it only because I was hoping for a little bit more, but also I can breathe a uh, sigh of relief because I don't have to spend $2,000 on another iPad right now. So yeah, and I, I do want to talk more about it because I've, I've had it for another week and have some thoughts. Right. And especially about stage manager too. But with no new Macs the rest of this year, that does mean supposedly quarter one, maybe quarter two, we might be waiting five or six months for an M2 iMac, M2 Mac Mini, updated MacBook Pros, and that Apple Silicon Mac Pro. So if you were looking to buy a Mac now before the end of the year, or you're looking to buy a Mac for a family or friend with the holidays coming up, it looks like the current lineup is what you have to choose from. M2 MacBook Air, probably one of the most popular models right now. Incredible machine. Probably want to look at that, you know, especially for maybe students, college or high school is a great option. The iPad lineup is a conglomeration of things. <laughs> we can talk about it's complicated. That it's complicated. And then, uh, you know, you still have the Mac Studio sitting there, which is not even a year old yet. I don't know for whatever reason the Mac Studio feels like it's been it's out for several there. years. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like it's been it. a part of us this whole time. It's been a part of us. But, but yeah, but that's it. No new Macs. The Mac lineup's interesting. I, I would put it this way. If you're a student, you're going to college, this is your, like, you know, you're, you're that age, you're maybe getting your first real big boy Mac and you're, you want to take it to school and, uh, and have it for some serious workloads in that respect and the college respect. Yeah. Go get that into MacBook air right now. It's perfect that, that like, you're not going to regret that purchase. If you're a 
pro, like what you'd call a pro user, video person, uh, you know, graphics editing, blah, 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 you've probably already purchased your high-end Mac Studio or high-end MacBook Pro. Um, if you haven't, you know, financial reasons or whatever timing, if you've waited this long, maybe wait those last few months because I wouldn't say like if you can't wait, say until next October, like if you can't wait a full year, maybe go ahead and make your purchase. But if you can make it at least to the spring, then you probably won't regret waiting because there's there's likely to be some M2 Pro, M2 Max, uh, Max coming out around then at the latest next fall. But I, I'm expecting spring with you. Yeah, I agree. If, if you've held out this long, try to hold out a little more for those pro-level machines at least. And the M2, I think, is definitely promising when it comes to those power chips, M2 Pro, M2 Max, M2 Ultra, which we still all have to see over the next probably, I would say, even year and a half. You know, I don't know if we'll get an M2 Ultra for... Ultra's a, a fall next year chip, I, and yeah. I, honestly, and I, I believe that's when we'll see the Mac Pro finally, and Tim Cook will go out on stage and make a joke about how he meant to say three instead of two. and <laughs> Everybody laughs and everybody's good. So with the M2 iPad Pro, the official reviews on our site, Malcolm did the write-up, did a great work there. The pros and cons is as you would expect. You know, the M2 iPad Pro, if you have an M1, it's very similar. It's still an incredible tablet. The 12.9 inch has that amazing mini LED display. And it is still disappointing that that display didn't carry down to the 11 inch. And Stage Manager, We'll have some thoughts on that in a second. I just wanted to mention after another week of usage, I edited last week's episode of the Apple Insider podcast on the M2. You know, I really can't say that there is a noticeable speed difference. The files exported quickly. Uh, I'll try and do a side by side, like exporting an MP3 file, but I'm not exporting like 4K video. Like I'm, I'm exporting an MP3 file. So you might see like half a second difference. So I would not be looking at the M2 for significant performance gains. But I do want to mention the Apple Pencil Hover, which is a cool like party trick and like showing someone how the apps in the dock kind of enlarge slightly and in certain apps like Pixelmator and Procreate using the Pencil Hover and like pinching and zooming with your other hand can change the thickness of the tool that you're using. Like all that's very cool. I actually found in Ferrite, which is not built in Hover support just yet. I mean, I've talked to the developer, Canis, he's been on this show. He's going to investigate it. He's not sure how, you know, he's going to incorporate it just yet. But Apple Pencil Hover does highlight the buttons and tools in whatever app you're in. So if you like hover your Apple Pencil over bookmarks in Safari or any kind of like back arrow, like it will highlight that as you hover over it before you tap it. It's like the same behavior as the as the uh, cursor uh, for the mouse. Right. Like when you when you run your cursor over a button or whatever, it changes shape and it kind of highlights that command even before you take action and click it. Well, when I'm editing a podcast with Apple Pencil, I hover a lot because I'm watching the timeline go by and I might make a quick delete as it's playing. I kind of edit in real time like that. And the hover feature was kind of driving me nuts because it would highlight every like contextual menu command and every clip. And it felt like I might be making an action, but I wasn't sure if I was yet. And I'm, it made me like gun shy. So I actually had to disable the hover effect just for that editing, like in podcast editing. So I kind of wish there were more options with the hover as far as maybe don't highlight all the key commands, like just use hover when it's an actual built-in feature to an app. And so I'm curious if any M2 users out there have experienced that as well. But it was a little jarring when there's like a lot of tools in a small area. 
and you're like hovering your pencil over and they're all kind of highlighting and expanding. So it's a little, it's a little rough. You know, it's a new feature. We still got to see apps built, build it in. Side note, I'm curious just about new features. I just thought of this, but iOS 16 live activities, or at least 16.1, I've been looking for use cases for that. It seems like Flighty is the big app that really has taken advantage of it and looks great. Have you noticed live activities in any of your apps yet? Live activities are cropping up everywhere. I've noticed that I don't like them in certain places. Timery just came out with a huge update uh, to add live activities, lock screen widgets and stuff. Mm. I think it's going to take some time to understand where I want a live activity versus a widget. Right. Um, because having both is kind of crazy. I, I had the timery live activity at the bottom of the screen and the widget at the top of the screen. I was just like, okay, guys. But yeah, uh, I've been using the Apollo Reddit uh, mm. Pixel Pals thing. And he actually, uh, the developer of Apollo, came out with uh, a new app specifically for the Pixel Pals. So you can have that as a separate thing if you're not really a Reddit user. And it's kind of cool. You have this little Tamagotchi-like uh, pixelated animal that you can have show up in your dynamic island or on your lock screen or in a widget on your home screen. And that's really mm -hmm. cool. So it, clever uses in a few places, they're slowly coming out, but not in a lot of places. Yeah. So, I, and I haven't, I've been looking at like Chick-fil-A, Starbucks, like food delivery services, like Uber Eats and the Uber apps have been updated three times since live activities has launched, but none of those updates have included live activities. And those are really the apps that are going to take advantage of that kind of progressive information, like how far is the food from being delivered kind of thing. So just don't have it yet. So back to iPad, because I gave stage manager a go and Wes had the official review of iPad OS 16. And so I want to hear his thoughts on it as well. I I'd really only used stage manager for a few seconds, a couple times during the beta period. But this past week, I gave it a solid go. I like enabled it, tried to create several groupings of apps, resizing windows. And stage manager has been largely crit criticized like on Twitter, especially by like Federico Vitici, who's a huge iPad Pro user. But I do want to say I don't hate it. And I found that in some use cases, especially copy and pasting several lines of text between apps or dragging and dropping, I liked it, but it is a little jarring. Wes, why don't you tell me kind of your review of the iPad OS 16, but your thoughts on Stage Manager. Everyone's talking about Stage Manager, and I I, I, I uh, actually opened up my review with Stage Manager knowing that that was kind of the elephant in the room. <laughs> right. It's interesting, to say the least. I've been using Stage Manager on my Mac by default since um, the first Mac OS beta. It's great. It's stable. It's useful. It's easy to understand. It's the windowing system from the Mac plus some extra uh, UI on top. On the iPad, though, they wanted to do two things at the same time that weren't compatible. They wanted to keep the iPad OS system of app management, but add windowing to it. And those two things are not, they don't work together. And what's worse, and uh, what others have pointed out, is that developers, even now with uh, iPad OS 16 released, have no way to tell their apps, hey, you're in stage manager, stage manager is active. You're in a small window, you're in a large window. The apps have no idea. They're just basically resizing based on the pre-configured um, safe zones that developers have set for different screen sizes. And you can kind of tell because it feels weird sometimes, like when you're trying to resize a window to an exact size where on a Mac, you can infinite adjustment, feels weird on Pixel by pixel. Yeah. yeah, on the iPad, you could have a toolbar, like uh, say, for instance, uh, Spring for Twitter. It's a Twitter application. It has a toolbar active, but it, once the window gets so small, the toolbar goes away because it's now the iPhone application. And 
you you never know what you're going to get once you start resizing a window, uh, either tallways or, or widthwise. Like uh, just everything is reshuffling and moving because the, on the developer side of things, they shifted the UI based on screen sizes, knowing that it's a static object. It's not going to change. You're not going to resize your iPad. But now that the windows are resizable, yeah, all those you all those different UI schemes are coming out. And developers are now going to have to go back and retool every single one of their apps to have a consistent UI from big to small and uh, offer a better pixel to pixel sizing ratio. But again, they don't know that you're resizing it, but they're going to have to kind of do the guesswork on the back end. And on top of that, you have this strip of apps on the left side that is great. I want it pretty much visible all the time because it offers a really cool way to see what apps are available and what your spaces look like. So you can just switch between different things that you're working on, different window sets. And I've actually found myself only using two apps at most, maybe three in these situations, uh, in these different stages, because anything more than that and the content gets lost and you Unlike macOS, when you click on a window and it just shifts to the front, if you shift any windows to the front on Stage Manager, all the other windows are moving around. It's a the UI is just consistently active all the time. A little too fluid. It's a little too fluid. Yeah, and it's easy to lose your bearings. I would say. Now I had a tweet thread, and a lot of people responded and said on smaller iPads, namely anything but the twelve point nine inch, it feels even worse. Which, you have an iPad Air, don't you? I have an iPad Pro and an iPad Mini. Okay, okay. and you, But you have the 12.9-inch iPad Pro. Yes. Yeah, so I've not had a chance to experience it on an 11-inch iPad Pro, although it seemed like a lot of people were saying it's not great. I did try Stage Manager on my Mac and really did not care for it there because it felt like you were just saying, Wes, how things are just always in motion it felt like very jarring when you would switch between a different grouping of apps. Yeah. Everything was very fast to move and it didn't feel great. How, how's been your experience on the Mac versus the iPad? I have, I have one complaint on the Mac and otherwise it's it's pretty much perfect. It's exactly the kind of windowing system. I hate windows, by the way. Like I never wanted a windowing system on iPad because I, did, I don't like windows, but I mm. like how this makes windowing work. I tended to use spaces before and switch between different spaces with a four finger swipe on the Mac with uh, split screens and stuff. And that was all fine. But this fits my uh, mental model of uh, multitasking much better. Mm. My only complaint is, is on iPad, I can do a four finger swipe between stages. But if you do a four finger swipe on Mac, you're switching spaces and there is no gesture to switch between your stage and the next stage. And that's annoying. I want a quick way to swap stages. Yeah, you can just go click it. But again, that gesture being different from Mac to iPad is, it feels broken to me. Um, but otherwise I love it. It just put as many windows as you want in a stage, arrange them however you want, set up five, six stages and you're good to go. You can just move between your workflows without thinking. The one thing on the Mac that really got me though, is that when I had three or four apps in stage manager open, And I wanted to open a finder window because I want to interact with a file, probably with one of the apps that are open in that stage. Like opening a finder window throws you to another stage. It doesn't open the finder window in the app grouping stage that you have open. It throws those to the side and then basically gives you a new stage with just the finder window. That is annoying. That would be annoying, which is not something you do as often on iPad. And there is no finder. You would open the files app. And if you're in a stage, you have three apps open, you could just drag the files app up and then it will be open on the stage and you could do what you want. So 
that's a like, weird thing. Yeah, I'm cheating a little bit. I have my MacBook lid open, and that's another display. Um, and that always has Finder, Notes, and Mail open in a stage. Right. And so those are pretty much apps that I'm always going to be fetching information from, and that pretty much remains static. Um, there's another stage on that. That's the Photos app. I use um, images from Photos sometimes, so that I can switch between those, and that's fine. And then on the Mac, I have my other workspaces set up. And I found... Yes, if I open, I'm not opening a lot of new apps because I have my stages set up and I'm just switching between them. But if I do need to open a new app or a new window and that occurs, you just immediately switch back to your previous stage and then shift click on the um, newly open window inside of the left sidebar and it comes forward to your current stage. And that's mm, that, that okay. that's a little shortcut. It's uh, three more clicks than it should be, but it works. Okay. I'm going to keep trying it. I typically have like some setups like on my Mac when I'm just doing any kind of work. I do have messages, Twitter, mail and Slack always just open kind of like on my main desktop. And then I would use spaces typically for other things like maybe I have Final Cut and Compressor open in another space and then another Safari window with different tabs. And so I could see a world where Stage Manager would be good for that where you like organize your default desktop and then other app groupings. So I'm going to keep giving it a go. I'm going to keep trying yeah. it out. So back on the iPad, just to sum up my thoughts a little bit more. Um, I like stage manager to be clear, but there's a lot of weirdness when you have two apps open side by side. One of the things that really helps turn on display scaling. If your iPad, I think right. it's the M one iPads that support display scaling, turn that on and you get so much more space, more pixel density for resizing windows and grouping them, but it's still not enough because right now I'm looking at the notes app and Safari side by side and basically half screen, like a split screen and the stage dock is gone. I'm in universal control, so I can't access the stage th thing period. Right. It's just gone because that side of the screen is the universal control. So the only way I can access my active stages is if I use my finger to swipe from the edge, because otherwise the mouse is just going to go to the Mac. If I move to that corner, like just odd little things like that, there needs to be a gesture for bringing up the stage. There needs to be smarter controls. Like if I'm using a trackpad with my iPad, I should be able to do like on the Mac with um, the today view, I should be able to go to the edge of the trackpad and swipe in to bring in the stages. Right. Like little ideas like that could go a long way. But overall, I think this is the right path. Uh, there's some people on the internet that, that are saying Apple needs to scrap the whole idea and start over or just bring Mac OS to the iPad. I still think both of those are just wrong. Um, Apple's off to a good start here. It's a buggy start. And if you want to see my all of my thoughts, you know, because we're not going to go over everything here, definitely read the review. I, I go into detail about everything. It's just interesting because it's it's so close to being right, but there's so many things that break in odd ways that just make it annoying at best. Yeah, and, and I agree. I think there is a path forward. I see the potential and I see where I might want to use it. And that's why I really wanted to give it a go. And I think in certain work tasks, having those four apps up on iPad allowed me to use my iPad and work on it where I would normally reach for a Mac allowed me to do those things, you know, because we don't have, I'm glad Apple shipped it. Like, uh, yeah, I, I yeah. don't think, I don't think they should have kept it under wraps another year or whatever. I'm glad they got it out there because this isn't a very opinionated concept and it needs to be out in the open because the 12 engineers working on it inside Apple, 
uh, need more context, need more input. And now that it's out there, everyone and their mother is yelling about stage manor, manager on Twitter. <laughs> and Apple, you know, good and bad, they're getting input on right. what needs to be done and what needs to be changed. And they're able to, you know, address that. And that, and it's been useful, I think, because we've seen a lot of um, changes come to stage manager over the development period that have been complaints from the public. And now those may not be one-to-one related, but at least it's making some sense. You know, there's forward progression. It's getting better. Honestly, I think too, uh, what's like, this is a twofold problem. The other side of this is developers. I think developers really needed to get this in their hands. They needed to experiment with it. They need to work with their apps inside of it to see how it works and functions so they can start developing their apps. One example is, again, Spring for Twitter. That app has was broken for a while in Stage Manager because if you tried to type text, reply to a tweet or quote a tweet or anything like that, it brings up a modal window. And uh, the modal window would crash the app. You couldn't type in it. Mm-hmm. You type two letters and then the cursor would disappear, count to three and the app would crash. They fixed that. But again, that was, that wasn't Spring's problem. That was a stage manager UI issue. The modal window just didn't understand what was happening. Yeah. Developers just need to see this. They need to get their apps updated. And I think we might hit a cross section sometime somewhere in the spring, maybe where Apple's had enough time to fix the issues. Developers have had enough time to go hands-on with it that we might actually see a cohesive experience before um, iPadOS 17 brings more features. Yeah. And then more space setting. If you didn't know, if you have an M1 or M2 iPad, if you go to settings, display and brightness, scroll down to view, or it's under display zoom. There's actually three settings, larger text, default, and more space. More space will make everything visually smaller. Text will be smaller. App icons will be smaller. But people using Stage Manager a lot say that the more space setting has made Stage Manager a little better, at least a little better experience. So Yeah, I have it on by default. Now, the odd thing is, for those of us who make screenshots, it breaks those automatic tools um, that detect. Yeah, so, well... Think about it. Your resolution's doubled, essentially. So when you take a screenshot of an image, the pixels width by height are different from the standard 12.9 inch display. So you go into an app like Pixo, it's like detecting the image size to know what frame to put around it, the iPad frame or iPhone frame. Yeah. It's like this uh, this device doesn't exist. So you have to manually add your frames and stuff. Not a, not a headache. Luckily, Apple offers all those as uh, PNGs, but I just thought that was interesting. It's You're yeah. literally getting the extra pixels, even in your screenshots. So gotcha. Oh, that's interesting. So I wanted to mention Sebastian DeWith. He's on the team that makes Halide, one of the excellent camera apps for iPhone. He had a full review of the iPhone 14 pro camera, the 48 megapixel sensor, all of that. That's there. It is an incredible review. I encourage you to read it. I'll put the link in the show notes. Amazing. The photos that he gets out of the iPhone 14 pro as well. Just incredible imagery. Uh, Just look at those for the sake of it. There's also an image in his review where he has the physical sensor of the 13 Pro versus the 14 Pro, the actual sensor behind the lens. And it is startling how much larger the 14 Pro sensor is. And a larger sensor, obviously better picture quality, better bokeh and depth of field because it's a larger sensor. So pretty incredible uh, to see that. Two of the things that I've noticed just in use now, having the iPhone 14 Pro for, what, about two months, the low-light photos that I've been getting are amazing. We were making s'mores the other night, and I just tweeted a photo of the fire. And just the the clarity, the crispness, the the HDR nature, because it's fire against a dark background, 
the image just looked amazing. And even if you zoom in a little bit, it just retains such clarity and quality. So love that. But I also find this was a change in the 14 Pro is that the minimum focal distance means that the main lens on the iPhone 14 Pro camera, the default one when you open the camera app, can't focus as close. So if you want to focus on an object with the 13 Pro, you could put it pretty close to the lens and it will still be able to focus. And it feels now that the 14 Pro, you do have to move it farther away. Now, the 14 Pro has the ultra wide lens and it can go into macro mode if you're holding something very close. But in my use case, which is basically, I'm taking a picture of a product on my desk in front of me, whether that's an iPhone case or a MagSafe battery or whatever, I've noticed that I cannot hold the phone at the distance that I expect. I have to move back a little farther and then typically the framing changes. And so I often find myself jumping to the 2X lens, which is really just cropping in the 48 megapixel sensor. I'll jump to 2X and that feels like holding it at the right distance. I was curious, what have your thoughts been just about the camera after two months? And if you notice that weird focal distance thing too. Well, the uh, focal distance is definitely much further. I, I don't have the exact numbers, but if it was two inches before, it's four inches now. Right. It's it's very noticeable in certain situations, especially, like you said, photographing small objects or animals. Yeah. You're going to that macro mode much more often. It doesn't uh, bother me. I have noticed, though, that I'm less likely to take subject photos, like a photo of a person, object thing. I'm, I'm less likely to just take a subject photo with the straight 1x camera just because my it, the framing is off or or the focal distance whatever so i'm relying more on the 2x lens which is interesting right. because um it's like apple said it's that that perfect near 50 millimeter equivalent that photographers love and there's a reason why photographers love it because it's very similar to our own eyes uh, focal length and what's also interesting about that 2x is the bokeh you get from it is really um, satisfying. I, so yes. even though like the nerd and you, you have to shut them up every now and then tell them to be quiet because <laughs> the, the nerd, the nerd is wrong. All right. You're yes, you are cropping into the t 48 megapixel uh, sensor, but that doesn't matter. You're getting top quality 12 megapixel images out of it. Yeah. And honestly, it's so good in low light. And uh, yeah, I, I've pretty much been defaulting to that so often now for a lot of images just to kind of that way I can automatically force myself to hold my phone further away because it's cropping in so much. I have to back off and that gives me that sharper focus and everything as well. Yeah. So it's, it's a, it's a good trick, but I've noticed that I've been using the macro lens less on subjects now, unless I'm taking specifically a macro photo, like close up detail shots. Right. Exactly. So I also find in the review, Sebastian DeWitt talks about the front facing camera as well, which is actually vastly improved over the 13 Pro. Autofocus goes a long way. The autofocus goes a long way. And just the sharpness that you get from an image on the front facing camera is awesome. It's the bokeh that the front facing camera naturally has now when you focus on an object closer to it. It's, uh, it's pretty amazing. And so when it comes to year over year improvements with the camera, obviously when it comes to iPhone, everything feels incremental until you look at a three or four year gap between devices. But when it comes to the camera specifically, it really feels like the 14 Pro has been a significant jump yeah. in the uh, camera technology. And I'm, I'm with Sebastian on the 3X as well. It is such a huge jump in performance, even though the sensor, the hardware and stuff is different. Because the, the 3X camera, nothing changed phys physically in the hardware, but it's 
way better because of the photonic engine. Uh, the 3X lens actually, uh, if you use an iPhone 12 or 13, a lot of the times you'd click 3X and you were still on the original camera just cropped in because the light intake on that camera was so much better. You'd have to basically, in order to use actually use the older 3X lens, you'd have to be out in a bright sunshine, you know, to actually use that physical sensor. Now that's that's totally gone. Right. You're actually using that 3X sensor way more often and medium to low light, and it just produces crisp, great photos. And that 3X punch, I think, uh, is really great. So I, I'm just really liking the telephoto options on the uh, the iPhone yeah. 14 Pro, for sure. For sure. And and like you said, that 2X lens it gets a really nice bokeh. Like, it's really impressive. So take a look at uh, Sebastian DeWitt's review. That link will be in the show notes. Also, I wanted to touch on the Apple TV 4K because it is a new product. It is being launched in November 4th. Initial reviews were out. I watched the Digital Trends video review on YouTube. It was a really good review, really in-depth. When it comes to all the Apple products, it does feel like the Apple TV is one of the less exciting ones to talk about. And when it comes to like capability and features, you don't really feel a lot different model over model. But like the Digital Trends review said, this new Apple TV 4K having the A15 Bionic chip and the larger storage, which if you're going to get a brand new Apple TV, Pay the 20 extra dollars, get the model with Thread, Ethernet, and all of that, and 128 gigabytes of storage. And like the review was saying, it really feels like this is positioning itself, the new Apple TV 4K box, for a future in gaming or other, you know, high-end use cases. And like, it is vastly overpowered, especially compared to other streaming sticks like the Chromecast or Fire TV or Roku, whatever it is. Like the Apple TV 4K is way overpowered for what it is. But that's like a good problem to have because it's future-proofed. You don't have to upgrade it every year unless you're a crazy person like me. But the fact that it has that A15 Bionic, again, is going to let you probably play games maybe in the future. That larger storage capacity, again, you can put larger games on it with better graphics, better imagery. And I'm excited to try it. So, I mean, I have one coming on launch day tomorrow as you listen to this or today. But it's a it's a great little box. It's still, uh, I love to... You know, for streaming content, it is overkill, but it is also a really nice experience, especially if you're an Apple person, you know. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, the 64 gigabyte option doesn't exist. That thing's <laughs> just don't bother. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting one to Friday as well. And oh, cool. yeah, I'm, I'm excited, if only because it is a significant improvement. I mean, that A15 Bionic is a good chipset is very capable it is still more powerful than most even at like android devices and tablets out there in this set top box and you have to think about it gaming on mobile is huge and i it, it annoys me to no end that developers ignore the apple tv um i remember when uh, mojang who make minecraft removed the minecraft app from apple tv because they were moving to the bedrock edition for basically cross-platform gaming uh more or less. And they were like, nobody plays on the Apple TV. It's probably like five people, including me. And uh, we're getting rid of it. I'm like, man, I, I emailed them. And I asked them about it. I was like, what is going on here? And they're just like, just no one uses this. And it, it, it bugged me. But now with all this power, <laughs> I would love to see like Minecraft return. Genshin Impact could run on the Apple TV. They're like these, these games that are huge mobile games that people are obsessed with would be great. And uh, Apple Arcade is exemplary of that. And um, I've been using my Apple TV for gaming and uh, playing a lot of different games on it. And it's great. And uh, so more power, better, more storage. Awesome. Yeah. I'm just going to have dozens of games, all the Jack's Jackbox games, party games and stuff on there. It's just a really good platform that for that kind of stuff. 
I just I just can't help but think like if I'm able to play this game of SpongeBob SquarePants Battle for Bikini Bottom, dear lord, I love it. It was a PS2 game from, you know, 20 plus years ago. I'm dating myself, but it got re-released recently. They uh, remastered it for consoles and stuff and it came out on Apple platforms including the Apple TV and I love it. And so just like more of that please. Come on guys. Yes. There was also a change in the tvos where the watch now tab in the apple tv app has now added a featured row of content above your up next which typically your up next would have whatever episodes or movies you were watching it would have the next episode or to resume whatever the movie is and made for quick access to continue watching those and now they've placed a featured row above that which i think just on the face of it is not a great user experience this makes it harder or at least one step farther away from getting to your up next content. And then it also changes the large background image that you see on your TV because it will show an image from that featured row or autoplay a trailer as opposed to showing you an image of the thing you were already watching. This is a t- That's all configurable in settings, isn't it? Well, this is supposedly in the TVOS 16.2 beta. Because there, right now, if I in sixteen point one, if I go to settings, I can make it so my previews are screenshots from an episode rather than a still image. Oh no, you can yeah, that you can change. But this is because the there's a new featured row that is not the stuff you're watching. This is right. featured for like that Apple is putting there. That the large image that appears is from that featured row instead right. of what you were watching. Okay, it's but. So let me ask you this, though. When you're on the home screen of the Apple TV and you have the Apple TV app in the top row, does that still show your up next queue? That's a good question. I don't know. Um, I'll send you this image. This is what it looks like right now. I have not seen it personally because I'm not I'm not running the betas. It's a server side change, so you might, might not have to run the beta to see this, but looks like people running the beta are the ones seeing it more often. I, I have a feeling this will be a setting um, that you can update, but I hope so. I don't mind having Apple recommend me things, but this looks like sure. just Apple TV plus stuff. No, wait, there's Andor in there. There's Andor. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Which has a tight relationship there. I did want to bring up one other feature, exclusive news from Apple insider. Oh um, yeah. On the Apple TV app. So when you're on your Apple TV, watching Apple TV plus and your Apple TV app, um, <laughs> right. Go to the Apple TV app, go to the store section scroll down apple has revived the trailers uh, section oh nice so now because i hate this i don't know if i've explained before but i hate youtube with like a fiery passion and going to youtube on the apple tv and typing in a movie trailer well you're met with about 16 fake trailers uh, fake thumbnails the worst things that uh, in creation true well now because because uh, I'm always like, you know, family over something like, hey, look, this new movie's coming out. Let's go see it. And I'll show him a trailer. And it was just a whole process trying to find the correct trailer and not some dude talking about how excited he is for Black Panther. Right. So in the Apple TV app now, there's actually a dedicated trailer section for upcoming movies where you can go and watch within about a couple hours of them premiering, uh, like Ant-Man Quantumania and the new Black Panther trailer and the new Avatar trailer were all on there within a few hours. That's cool. Um, it's not instantaneous, but again, like how are you checking these instantaneously? Right. Right. But, uh, it's just really awesome that that's back. And the, you know, the trailers app has been more or less defunct for years. Um, so I'm just happy to see Apple bring that little tidbit back to the Apple TV app. That is cool. I did like the trailers app. And so excited for that. I agree. Like trying to find the right trailer on YouTube is an effort in futility sometimes. <laughs> like the Marvel YouTube channel will have some, but SEO stuffing. Yeah. It's just not, you can't, you can't win 
when you don't know what you're looking for. Yeah, if you already have the channel saved and you go like, but even Rotten Tomatoes is and uh, like uh, Fandango and stuff where there used to be just a plethora of trailers. Now it's just check out our exclusive interview. And it's just, no, I just want to see a trailer. Right. Or or there's a ad. There's like a 30 second ad before you get to watch a trailer. It's right. not, not, not great. Not great. All right. Two last quick pieces of news. I do want to mention that Apple supposedly freezed hiring through September 2023 for the next year, citing budget cuts and again, in expectation of there being a recession. And so this looks like not official. It's not like an Apple statement, but this is a report from Business Insider saying that high level conversations within Apple show a hiring freeze. Well, this is like the third time we've gotten this specific report True. Um, from, you know, unknown internal sources. While on the opposite end of the spectrum, you can take this with a grain of salt. Tim Cook is on the front line saying, uh, we're slowing hiring. We're being more deliberate with hiring, but we're not doing anything to any extreme. Right. So I, I think the truth somewhere in the middle, I guess big companies are always hiring. They're always looking for new talent. They're always expanding, but Apple is already the biggest company on the planet. And if you check the stock market today, I believe Apple is the size of Facebook, Google, and Microsoft combined now. Yeah. Um, so it's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> when was, was, when is enough enough? Right. Like, but right. Uh, in, in any case, I can kind of get it, but at the same time, why is this a concern? I, I it's just, it's just funny to me that this is news. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think it's, just, it's indicative of, you know, cause all the financial analysts are like when or how bad will a recession be? And so hearing Apple take precautions, you know, I guess triggers, you know, or at least confirms the idea. A spokesperson from Apple. The doom. Yeah, and it is a little bit of doom scrolling. But an Apple spokesperson did give a statement to Business Insider. They said, quote, we are continuing to hire, but given the economic environment, we're taking a very deliberate approach in some parts of the business. We are very confident in Apple's future and are investing for the long term. We want to be thoughtful and make smart decisions that enable us to continue fueling innovation for the long term. And or you know, Apple could be like we work and buy 15 skyscrapers and hire 100,000 people without any money, but that's <laughs> whatever. Right. So, and lastly, and I want to preface this by saying we this is not a political discussion. We will not be like falling on that side at all, but I do think it is important to mention that Elon Musk has officially bought Twitter. He acquired it as we record, it was last week, I believe late Thursday the news broke and then into Friday. But he has acquired it. It is now, he is taking it private again. It will not be publicly traded. He did fire a bunch of the high-level staff, including Agrawal, which was the Twitter CEO. He fired legal counsel, all of that. There are lots of rumors that he'll be laying off a significant portion of the Twitter staff and lots of rumors in the past week of what he will do. And not just rumors, but basically Elon tweeting <laughs> should it, to his 110 million followers should I do this or should I do that? Arguing with Stephen King. So one of the news was that he might make the Twitter verification process, which is the blue check, which previously you had to either be extremely popular, like a celebrity, or you could apply for verification. And whether you were a journalist, content creator, or some other influential type account, Twitter would bestow upon you the blue check for verification, which was supposed to trigger you are who you say you are. And there are some practical benefits, like you can view your mentions that only include other verified accounts. So you can actually view, just show me who re replied to me and they are verified. You can choose who can reply to certain tweet threads and all that kind of stuff. There is zero monetary benefit to being verified. You do not get paid at all. Like someone, like there's been this question of like what, 
monetary benefit there is to being verified. Like there's no monetization that's available to you by being verified. This is not like a YouTube partner or anything like that. So there's no monetary value to it. There's some filtering and moderation tools that being verified affords you and just having kind of a notable blue check that people might be more likely to follow you. Typically, there's been no charge for that. That was just an application process. Twitter would choose who is verified. Now, the rumor is that Elon will charge for verification included with Twitter Blue, which is Twitter subscription service for things like bookmark folders, ad-free articles from some publications, and some other benefits specifically for Twitter Blue, like changing the app icon, but that he would require everyone who is verified to pay monthly to keep their verified status, and then maybe allow current non-verified people to pay and be verified by continuing to pay. Originally, it was $20 a month. That's gone down now to Elon saying maybe he'll just charge $8 a month. And it's been kind of a mess ever since. Yeah, most of what that man says on Twitter is made up or uh, just like, and I'm not, and again, this isn't to be political or anything. It's just the observation of part of his strategy as is he likes to throw things at the wall and see what sticks. So just randomly saying ideas to the, to the air, whether or not they've been vetted, yes. totally his strategy. So, and seeing how people react and putting out random polls, that's just his entire thing. So go ahead and take everything he says with a grain of salt, because even this $8 thing may not ever happen because right. it's just throwing things out there. Now it's one of those, he hasn't even spoken to an engineer about it type deal. Like how do we even get to this point? Is it even feasible? Those questions haven't been asked. It's just, Oh, let's just do verification. How much? Ah, about 20 bucks. Oh, Stephen King didn't like that. Let's make it $8. And that's probably literally the thought process going on right now. I wouldn't put too much uh, behind it, but um, I will say this whole Twitter thing, guys, it's always been terrible. If Twitter as a service itself alters at some point to make it so tweeting is harder or makes it so I you're now required to follow at least 10 people you disagree with in order to continue tweeting, like they make it worse for us to just follow our people, follow our news and communicate with each other. If that changes, that's when Twitter stops being Twitter. But as far as I can tell, none of that's going to change. It's just going to be Twitter plus here's some random crackpot ideas from the CEO thrown in every now and then and uh people can grumble about it but they were already doing that before spaces <laughs> fleets got fleets. fleets yep you know it makes me sad seeing like people leave uh this platform because as weird as twitter is i think it's the last real bastion of like real people who are the at least the people who are being real because there are a lot of fake people being fake but yeah. this is the last place that's social media that's purely here's what's happening right now in the world and we're all talking about it versus people posting on Instagram trying to to impress everyone with their beach photos or people posting on Facebook uh, about how angry they are at their uncle for voting for somebody right like it's just Twitter and uh, yeah. hopefully it stays that way I'm st I'm sticking around until it catches on fire so oh yeah and and I'll put a link to this tweet thread I did but. Like you said, I think Twitter is still unique, you know, because just look at the alternatives. And, and they're all run by terrible people and do terrible things. So like, yeah, well, and none of the smaller options like Mastodon or whatever, like there's just not people there. There's not an audience. So when it comes to viable social networks, if Mastodon was 10% less confusing, I would use it. Right. But that's, that's the thing. Listen, these products are hard. You know, I'm not saying this is like an easy thing. That's why there are so few but I don't go like there's not an audience on Facebook that I really engage with or who is in this space, namely the Apple tech space, YouTube. There are people there and I interact in comments, but it does not feel like 
a conversation like Twitter feels. Instagram is a mess, not sure what it wants to do. TikTok is weird, it's exciting, it's like active, but I don't feel true engagement and connection to people that even comment on a video there. Twitter yeah, I'm, I'm not going to download TikTok. <laughs> well, yeah, and that and that too, but Twitter still felt like the one genuine place where people would reply to a tweet and I felt like I was replying back to a real person and whether it was a question, uh, something nice or a critique, it feels like I'm really engaging with people and it is a conversation and there's no really where else are you going to see like major world leaders on a platform that a tweet is then used on CNN to report the news. You know, I think Twitter has a unique position odd. there. Yeah, it is. It is weird, but because it's like the de facto news social network, I think it's going to be around for a while. I don't think there's going to be as many drastic changes as Elon seems to be implying. The ex social media thing's never going to happen. That's that that's about as likely as self driving cars. But um, I did want to ask you one last thing. Sure. Do you want Vine to come back? I was just gonna, I was just going to mention Elon Musk literally tweeted, "Should I bring Vine back?" And listen, I used Vine when it was around, and I loved Vine. Yes. You could say that TikTok is like the modern version of Vine, but no, I don't think it is. Like TikTok, yeah, but it's like fifteen-minute videos now. It's not even. You can now do, yeah, you can now do super long videos. I don't think it's the same. I think there is still a place for Vine, and I'd be all about it coming back. Just bring it back exactly like it was. Just resurrect the app. You don't even have to make any changes to what it was. Maybe give creators a way to monetize their stuff. Go for it. I'm just gonna just gonna go back to my favorite quote from Twenty Two Jump Street. Just do the same thing. You did the last time. <laughs> it was good, right? Did you enjoy Vine back in the day? Oh, Vine's great. Yeah. I mean, what great. was it? A seven second vi- six, video? Six second video. Six, six second, second video. video. Yeah. That was like, it. And I, I think, yeah. I would make those. Yeah. Like, you know, oh here's here's this iPhone I'm playing with. I don't know. Like, that would be great. And there's a whole, like, conversation about creative constraint. And that small window of six seconds, no more. Like, that was part of the platform's ethos. That nothing will be more than six seconds. The fact that it looped that quickly was a whole part of the creation process like really enjoyed it and people have such nostalgia for vine i guarantee you it would be the number one app for at least a week if it relaunched like next month so i think they should do it uh, listeners let us know if you would like to see vine make a comeback you can tweet at wes and myself twitter handles are in the show notes you can support the show patreon.com apple insider or directly in apple Podcasts. thanks for tuning in we'll catch you next time